unknown poet once said, poet once said of women, after a while you learn the subtle difference between holding a hand and chaining a soul, and you learn that love doesn't mean leaning, and company doesn't always mean security. And you begin to learn that kisses aren't contracts, and presents aren't promises, and you begin to accept your defeats with your head up and your eyes ahead, with the grace of a woman not the grief of a child. And you learn to build all your roads on today because tomorrow's ground is too uncertain for plans and futures have a way of falling down in mid-flight. After a while, you learn that even sunshine burns if you get too much. So you plant your own garden and decorate your own soul instead of waiting for someone to bring you flowers. And you learn that you really can endure. You really are strong. You really do have worth. And you learn, and you learn. With every goodbye, you learn. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Coffee, Tea, and Crime. This is Dana, and in today's episode, JR and I will be traveling to Iowa to look into two separate cases which may have a connection. This is the story of The Blonde Factor, the murder of Michelle Martinko, and the disappearance of Jody Husentruitt. It was somewhere around 7.15 or 7.30 p.m. when the venerable 72 Buick rolled into the parking lot of the Westdale Shopping Mall in southwest Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Michelle Martinko, an attractive senior at Kennedy High School, parked her parents' car some 80 yards north of the JCPenney store and hurried across the lot on the chilly night of December 19, 1979. Michelle needed to find a new winter coat and, of course, spend some time chatting with schoolmates working at the shiny new indoor shopping center. Witnesses remember seeing her walking from store to store and their best recollection was that she was still shopping at 8 p.m. At some point, she left and walked towards her car. She opened the door to get in and was immediately attacked. It is not known what the attacker's motive could have been. Did the assailant want to kidnap her, rob her, sexually assault her? In any event, with Michelle pinned across the front seats, the attacker slashed and stabbed her repeatedly in the face and chest. Her hands showed defensive wounds, Blood spatter and cast-off patterns caused by each stabbing motion covered the entire front seats. Blood coated the steering wheel and gear shift. Her cries for help were muffled by the interior of the car and lost in the cold night air. By 2 a.m., her parents had called police and a search began. When told Michelle had been to the new mall, officers headed in that direction. Cedar Rapids police officer James Kincaid, riding in a one-man car, was the first officer on the scene. He found the Buick in a lower lot near J.C. Penney. He discovered the back driver's side door unlocked. When he looked inside the darkened interior, he found Michelle's body. The officer would later testify, quote, 
There was someone partially laying slumped down in the front passenger side seat. There was no movement, absolutely no movement. Her eyes were open, end quote. Inside the Buick, investigators found brown shopping bags, Martinko's purse lying underneath her body, and pints of her blood coating the front interior. The pathologist who performed the autopsy was Dr. Richard Feister. He found the cause of death to be internal and external bleeding from 29 wounds. Martinko had a laceration on the left side of her head from a blow that Dr. Feister wasn't able to establish its cause. Of the 29 sharp edge wounds on Martinko's body, 11 were stab wounds, mostly in her chest. Dr. Feister said there were also non-fatal slicing wounds on her chin and neck. A cut in her aorta was the fatal wound. The stab that penetrated her sternum and cut the heart would have caused death in minutes. Martinko lost two-thirds of her total blood volume during the horrendous assault. The force it would take to create some of the deep wounds would lead to a reasonable assumption that the assailant would have cut themselves. 39 years went by and the cold case turned frigid. Police developed and discarded near 80 suspects for the murder over the years. Michelle's father, Albert, would die in 1995, followed three years later by her mother, Janet. The broken-hearted parents would never see their daughter's killer brought to justice. In 2006, Cedar Rapids police were able to obtain DNA from blood scrapings recovered in 1979 from the gear shift and the back of Michelle's black dress. Through advancements in the technology, investigators worked with a commercial genealogy site called GED Match and were able to narrow the search down to three brothers in Iowa. One of the brothers' DNA matched. His name was Jerry Lynn Burns. Finally, on Wednesday, December 19, 2018, the 39th anniversary of Michelle's murder, Cedar Rapids Police announced they had arrested Burns in her homicide. He had been 25 years old when he stabbed Michelle to death. Jerry Burns was found guilty by the jury of first-degree murder on Monday, February 24, 2020. On August 7, 2020, Jerry Burns was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. It's 4 a.m. on the morning of June 27, 1995, and cascading rings of a gong draw Jody Husentruitt slowly from the layers of deep sleep until the realization that her phone is ringing shocks her awake. Her producer from KIMT-TV is on the other end of the line. The morning news anchor in Mason City, Iowa, had overslept and quickly assured her boss she would be there soon. Door to door, it was a four-minute drive from the 600 block of Kentucky Avenue to the 100 block of North Pennsylvania Avenue under normal conditions. Throw in the time of day, sequence of the traffic lights, and the urgency of the situation, the 27-year-old blonde Gopher State girl could make it in two. Grabbing up her hair dryer, hairspray, a pair of red heels, and earrings, she hurried from her small apartment into the parking lot. She inserted the key in the driver's side door lock of her red two-door Miata. Then she vanished. Hours later, after a missed newscast and countless calls from the station to her apartment, 
the police were called and a car was dispatched on a welfare check for Jody. The officer found a disturbing scene in the parking lot. Scattered on the parking lot were a hairdryer, a can of hairspray, high heels, and keys with a bent key still in the door lock of Jody's red Miata. The radio call for backup, supervisors, investigators, and crime scene personnel went out, and Mason City Police were soon flooding the parking lot. Police discovered what appeared to be drag marks leading from the Miata. It was not long that police were in boats on the nearby Winnebago River, a mere 80 feet from the rear of Jody's apartment building, checking the riverbanks and, more ominously, dragging the river itself. The police search broadened through the following days. One witness had allegedly seen a white van in the parking lot near Jody's car that morning at around 4 a.m., but other than a partial palm print lifted from the car, the crime scene was coming up snake eyes. There was no shortage of potential suspects over the days, weeks, months, and years of the investigation. It was, and still is, typical for police to routinely check known associates, friends, co-workers of the victim, including anyone that might have encountered the victim, such as delivery drivers, maintenance staff, and repairmen. In the case of Jody, she was seen almost daily by thousands of TV viewers, so the list of those who could say they knew Jody grew exponentially. And to quote a line from a movie, how do we covet? We covet what we see every day. In 2001, Jody was declared legally dead. How hard would it be for the abductor or killer to have watched Jody on her broadcast, and when the desire became just too much, to have driven down to the station and then followed her home. It would be a simple matter to conduct surveillance on Jody for a few days or even weeks to know her routine and to plan how he would snatch her up. Maybe this was the killer's first time, but the manner of the kidnapping seems to show that the person or persons involved had done this before. This was not some sideshow carniac. The victim was incapacitated and quickly loaded into a vehicle. Yes, a van would be much easier, but no matter the vehicle, the killer had most certainly done this before and had gotten good at it. Let's talk about Michelle and Jody. Michelle was murdered in 1979, and Jody was grabbed in 1995. I thought it was intriguing that Jerry Burns mentioned Jody during his interview with investigators at his place of work. Police didn't bring up her name. Why would Burns even think to mention a woman who had been missing for over two decades? A Freudian slip, perhaps. I have interviewed many of felons over my career with Memphis PD, robbery and homicide. And bad guys can say the darndest things when being questioned. Their little minds are running a mile a minute, and it seems on occasion they will blurt out indiscretions committed that were not even on the table. They did rue the day as a follow-up on their comments led to additional charges in many of those instances where Mr. Blabbermouth just couldn't leave well enough alone. Burns might not have been thinking about Michelle or Jody that day, but when police mentioned Michelle by name in her case, 
He became defensive about any involvement he had with her murder. Possibly he starts thinking about the other women. Now I'm just spitballing here, but he involuntarily says what he is thinking, which leads me to say, what the? When the subject of Burns' involvement concerning Michelle and Jody is brought up, I see people commenting something to the effect, why would he wait 16 years in between crimes? Let me retort. Who says he's been waiting 16 years? Who says he wasn't busy in between the two crimes? Who says he didn't start before Michelle? Now, I'm not saying Burns has committed any other murders or kidnappings. What I'm saying is it is interesting to look at the possibilities. So Dana and I are going to look at the possibilities and share them with all of you because you are all really swell. Now, according to the trial testimony, Burns liked to consume alcoholic beverages, and he seemed to take on a different persona when tipping the bottle. So with that in mind, I got on a site called Iowa's Cold Case. It's an excellent site. And let me tell you my basic parameters for my search. I looked at unsolved homicides and missing persons in Iowa from 1970 up to the 2000s. Not all missing person cases are on the site, so there's a chink in my data fishing trip. I look for cases involving female whites, teens up through their mid to late 30s, victims who were attacked, kidnapped in public. The basic MO would be a suspect who incapacitates his victim, carries them to a secluded spot, sexually assaults them, and then kills them. I firmly believe that Burns struck Michelle in the head initially in order to incapacitate her, and then he was going to load her in his car and drive her off to a nice quiet spot to rape her and then kill her. I found three homicide cases from the 70s and one from the 80s that seemed like they would fit the bill. Now, actually, I had found a fourth case from the 70s now Burns would have been 17 at the time, and the female involved was 13. So the age gap's not all that big, but I went on to put it to the side. Now, there are probably others. Remember, I didn't have access to all missing person cases. I'm quite sure there are a handful of missing women who fell victim to a killer. So without further ado... Julia Julie Ann Benning, 18 years of age, disappeared from Waverly, Iowa, Bremer County, body located in Shell Rock, Iowa, Butler County, date of death, November 28, 1975, body recovered, March 18, 1976. Julie went missing under mysterious circumstances while collecting cover charges in the Sir Lounge's front entryway, a mile northeast of Shell Rock, Iowa. Found her muddy body, nude and decomposed in a roadside ditch along a quiet country road, strangled to death. Marie Lisa Peak, 19 years of age, Waverly, Iowa, Bremer County. September 7, 1976. 
Friends last saw Peek when she said she was going shopping at Willow Lawn Shopping Center in Waverly. Her nude and beaten body was located around 11 a.m. under a lone cottonwood tree beside a gravel road near the John Anhalt Farm, a quarter mile north of Waverly's city limits. The 19-year-old Wartburg College sophomore had been sexually assaulted and, according to autopsy findings, died of suffocation and a broken neck. Camille Louise Noose, 20 years of age, Des Moines, Iowa, Polk County, August 4, 1978, approximate date of death, leaving hair salon in shopping mall. On Wednesday, October 18th, 74 days after her disappearance, her partially clad body was found buried beneath some brush and logs near Des Moines River in a deserted area known as the Flint Access. Due to decomposition, an autopsy failed to determine cause of death, but officials said they believed foul play was involved. The body ID'd through dental records. Corinne Elaine Perry, 17 years of age, Creston, Iowa, Union County, April 17, 1983. She was last seen Sunday, April 17, 1983, at a coin-operated laundromat in Creston, Iowa. According to authorities, a man walked out of the laundromat right behind the teen sometime between 8.30 and 9 p.m. the night she disappeared. Her laundry was found folded neatly in the car. On Tuesday, November 27, 1984, nearly two years after Corinne went missing, her remains were discovered near a creek bed in a shallow grave south of Creston between Kent and Lennox, fairly close to the bridge where her purse had been found. The coroner could not establish how she died. Well, as J.R. loves to quote from one of his favorite movies, that'll do, little pig, that'll do. And that'll also do it for this episode of Coffee, Tea, and Crime. Let us know what you think about this case in the comments below. And if you have a suggestion for a specific case you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please also let us know that in the comments. Thank you so much for watching, and please don't forget to give us a like if you enjoyed this video by hitting that thumbs up button. Hey, I've got an even better idea. Hit that subscribe button while you're there, and don't forget to click that bell to notify you when we put out a new video so you can be first to watch. Stay safe out there, and JR and I will see you on the next case.